You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. A program based on the universal language of music, it is our pleasure to present to you Corla Pandit. I know many of our viewers would like to know uh, some of your background, so why don't we start with the very elementary things. Where were you born? I was born in New Delhi, New Delhi, India, uh-huh. and uh, started performing music, in a sense, at a very early age, two years and four months old. <laughs> There were stories that he'd married a wealthy Texas oil woman. There were stories that he was gay, that he died, that he disappeared, that he was playing in pizzerias. Anything was possible with Corla. He took you on this emotional geographic trip, and it had a rise and a fall. It told a story every show in a way that was uh, part Hollywood and part imagination. I would dare say that some of the audiences that heard Call Pandit had their lower chakras resonated by sound almost as a sonic dildo in a way that they hadn't experienced before. The sound is one of the most powerful forces in the universe. Sound and sound vibrations. And in sound, you might say as Emerson did one time, vibrate a string and all strings in tune vibrate in unison. And I add to that, and so does the heart of man. He's a person who forever is going to be stepping out of time. You know, time and gravity don't, don't mess with him. He's, he's one of the immortals. Everyone who knew Corla knew that there was something very authentic about that man, and yet that there was a part of who he was that did not jive with his backstory. Corla Pandit's legacy is like any good legacy should be. And that is a good story. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me is the Sultan of Swing, Mr. Rob St. Mary. Oh, you know, we do what we can. On this special episode of the Projection Booth, we will be discussing the 2015 documentary Corla. It's a film about the maestro of the Oregon, Corla Pandit. Before we get into anything that could be considered spoilerish, let's just say that we're going to be talking about some interesting things that Corla uncovers that I know I was unfamiliar with. But going through a quick Google search would reveal them. That said, if you don't want to know anything about the documentary Corla, go ahead, turn off the podcast, and look for it coming your way sometime in the near future. Screenings are listed over at CorlaTheMovie.com. Now, for those who have stuck with us, I will say again that I didn't know much about Corla Pandit going into the documentary. I knew him from those kind of incredibly strange music days when hipsters were embracing exotica and all things that would be put into the good life section at WCBN. I actually found out about the documentary when we were doing research for our recent Ed Wood episode, which you can find over at projection-booth.com. Rob, were you a big Corla Pandit fan? I can't say I was a big fan, but I definitely knew who he was because I uh, was more interested in two of his contemporaries, I guess. Uh, and I also uh, have to say that I um, 
uh, I'm offended by the use of the term hipster uh, when it comes to uh, what you just said. I do not consider myself a hipster, but anyway. Rob, if the freep said that you're a hipster, you're a hipster. Yeah, well, whatever. I, I like exotica music. Now, exotica music for me uh, was not Corla Pandit. I did not really get into him, but I'm definitely a fan of Martin Denny and Esquivel. To me, they're two completely different guys in terms of uh, what they're trying to accomplish. Martin Denny being from Hawaii, originally from Los Angeles, but his main part of his career being in Hawaii and playing in clubs out there was taking sort of, I guess you could say, light jazz and mixing it with the idea of Orientalism. And we'll get more into that in a bit. And Esquivel is Juan Garcia Esquivel, and he is a Mexican composer who was doing a lot of stereo experimentations and also working with a lot of odd um, and not necessarily traditional instrumentation in the 1950s. So both of them are, to me, sort of two different takes on odd mid-century music, which when I reference this to older friends of mine, and what I mean by older is guys usually near 60 or older, they go, oh, that stuff's awful. I can't believe you listened to it. My mother liked that stuff. Yeah, I'm still waiting for that uh, Esquivel uh, biopic that John Leguizamo is supposed to be in. Uh, God, what was that, like a decade ago they were talking about that? Yeah, Esquivel was still alive then. Sadly, he's passed on. But uh, just to kind of give a little background and how I got into that kind of music, was in 94 or 95, I think it was 95, Four Rooms came out, which, you know, we've talked about before is not necessarily great. It's an interesting idea, anthology film, four different directors, including Tarantino and Robert Rodriguez. But the thing that really lit my fire on that film when I was still in high school was the score and the score was done by a group named combustible Edison and combustible Edison was signed to sub pop at the time. Now I did not know of their earlier incarnation as the punk rock band from, I believe it was Boston or Providence, Rhode Island known as Christmas. And they had a couple of albums, I guess in the eighties that um, did okay, but didn't go over all that well, kind of punk new wavy kind of stuff. And they retooled themselves sometime around, I think 91 or 92 as combustible Edison. And to me, I always saw the lounge aspect of what combustible Edison was doing as much more interesting than the swing revival, which was sort of happening at the same time with like Brian Setzer and, Cherry Pop and Daddies and all those other bands that were trying to bring back some sort of level of big band swing music. Uh, it's not that I don't like Louis Prima. Uh, I do, but I'd rather listen to Louis Prima than someone try to rip him off. Yeah, I was pretty fortunate. My ex-wife, one of her friends, was this guy, David Warmbier, who had a radio show. I can't remember what the call letters are for the Windsor College radio station, but he was their exotica guy. So going over to his house and actually house-sitting and everything over in Rosedale, Rosedale Park and flipping through his record collection and just all of these Martin Denny and Les Baxter and all these crazy albums and he was really kind of my exposure to a lot of that stuff. Yeah, I mean, Les Baxter is often credited as the first of the Exotica, although in this film, uh, they don't really bring up the other guys too much. They're mostly focused on Coral Pandit, and I even think that maybe he might be the first one in. To me, I think the thing that's interesting about Exotica, and especially when we talk about Les Baxter and Martin Denny and Arthur Lyman, and Arthur Lyman used to be in Martin Denny's band and then went solo after the first record. It was, to me, this um, 
idea that and and I might just be projecting this. I don't know for sure because obviously I haven't spent a lot of time interviewing uh, people of that age group and why they like this stuff if they were even into it. Is it seems to follow on the ideas of tiki culture that came out post World War II, so late forties and into the fifties. And I think that a lot of tiki culture and for you know, lack of a better term, also exotica, which I would classify in with that, comes from, I think, an extension of all of these World War II veterans who were in the Pacific. And they spent some time in the Pacific, but they weren't necessarily steeped in the culture in some way. So they came home and this was a way for them to have something that was connected to an experience of what they had there. Granted, a lot of that was warfare, but they were in an exotic place. There were people that did not look like them. There were sounds and voices and things around them and birds and animals that if you're some farm boy from Michigan or Iowa or wherever you had never seen before. So it it's to me an extension of that idea. I think in a lot of ways, um, and although uh, it's it's not as direct today in that way, there was a, a survey that was done a few years ago that um, one of like like the most popular dip now for parties is hummus. Now, when I was a kid, unless you were from around Metro Detroit where we have a rather large Middle Eastern population. You probably didn't even know what that was. It's interesting that that has now like infiltrated the mainstream. And I think in a lot of ways, kind of like Exotica, it has to do with an experience with another culture that we might not understand, but we're sort of borrowing forward this idea. And when we talk about stuff like Denny's music or even Corla Panda in a way, and I think also Chinese food, uh, which I would say there's a great documentary you can find on Netflix right now called Searching for General So that's worth watching about the development of American Chinese food and sort of the cultural things around it. It's this concept of something like it, although it's not directly it. So there is sort of sounds of the Orient kind of thing, but it's not really – direct from there you know it's this it's not authentic but it's not american and it's not either so it sort of lives in this other world the sort of like third thing and in, in, in a way when i talk uh when, when we get into the discussion about corla panda in a way and sort of his presentation of himself it almost sort of seems like um Maybe like someone trying to create science fiction or something. They're trying to create this place that really doesn't exist. I guess maybe like Shangri-La, you know, like the idea of this magical kingdom with its with its arts and culture that is, is really of no place in every place at once. If you're unfamiliar with Corla Panda, you might actually be familiar with him. He has a very striking look. He is this uh, Indian-looking gentleman with a turban with a little jewel on the front, and he usually has this kind of sphinx-like appearance. You know, and especially he had a television show for many, many years. That's one of the reasons why we're talking about Corla Panda. He had a television show for a lot, a lot of years, and it was a very interesting show where it was 15 minutes, and I imagine that they would use it as kind of like buffer between other shows. 15 minutes was not really a rare thing in the early days of TV. Um, when he started in 1949, news programming like the National News that came in from NBC uh, was 15 minutes. So the early Walter Cronkite and things like that. 
You mean they wouldn't just take one news story and beat it to death for 24 hours? No, we do that now. But back then, it was just you had a 15-minute update. See, TV in a lot of ways in the early days uh, was radio with pictures. Like People didn't exactly know what to do with it. So a lot of the old formatting ideas, such as 15 minutes of news and stuff like that and 15-minute shows, that was not really a rarity. Um, Also... I think we had talked about before on the Cabin Boy episode, um, we talked about Chris Elliott's dad, Bob Elliott, and Bob and Ray. And Bob and Ray had a 15-minute show, both on radio and then in the early days of TV. So this is like the idea of programming to the quarter hour is, is really not that not that rare in the early days. It gets, it gets weirder. I, I think it kind of pushed itself out of the marketplace probably by the mid-50s. It was considered a passe idea, and they started doing half hours. What I would give for 15-minute versions of a lot of shows. Yeah, most shows don't deserve longer than that, to be honest. I mean, to me, Aqua Teen Hunger Force and their 11-minute episodes are pretty much perfect. So, But no jokes with Corla Pandit. In fact, he never ever said a word. He just sat there looking dead into the camera and would play the organ. And he could, man, he could play. I love watching him play the organ, and apparently so did a lot of other people. And they kept hitting on the idea of housewives loving Corla Pandit and him being this kind of break from the routine and this nice little music break throughout the day. And I imagine that some of the ladies uh, in his audience found him rather attractive. I know I thought that he was kind of a handsome guy. Oh, I mean, I could see that. I mean, also he has, like you were talking about, this Sphinx-like character, very Buster Keaton, I guess, but not necessarily the physical comedy, but just sitting there and looking at you as he plays the organ, and then maybe there's a dancer or something behind him. I mean, very stone-faced, but not dour, sort of, I guess, maybe, uh, what's he thinking, uh, what's on his mind kind of thing. Yes, you could project many of your thoughts and feelings onto him, and he would even have like uh, dancers in the background. Apparently, they did some uh, short film versions of this stuff, too, where it was kind of like almost telling a story with these dancers going on. And yeah, it was just a fascinating, fascinating show. And so, yeah, they would even sell these short films or ship them out, and they would play them in movie theaters and be able to have some Corla Pandit with your Saturday matinee. And Sounds great to me. I could definitely stand for one of those in, in front of a, a normal movie-going experience these days. You know, Maybe cut down on the previews a little bit, maybe less of the what's coming up on TNT this month kind of thing, and just go ahead and show me some Corla Pandit. Well, you know, those folks pay their hard-earned dollars in order to show you those ads, so damn it, watch the ads, right? So the documentary definitely talks a lot about those early days and the effect that Corla Pandit had on the audience. And they do a great job of then kind of backtracking and saying, who is this guy? And they kind of play with time as far as they're, they're going through the life of Corla Pandit, one version. They're also going through the kind of rediscovery, quote-unquote, of Corla Pandit during this age of Exotica that we're talking about. So during this kind of like mid-90s period, up until, sadly, he passed away a few years ago. And then they kind of retell the story of Corla Pandit once they find out that, or once they reveal that he wasn't necessarily everything that he presented when it came to his persona, because they had some great interviews with him where he's on, it looks like almost like a public access where he is talking about 
where he grew up, that his mother was French, his father was this, um, what was it, a Brahmin or something, and just that he, uh, you know, his influence and how he uh, started playing piano when he was very, very young, and that's how he got into music. And then eventually you find out that that's pretty much kind of fabricated. Well, the one part of it that's true is that he definitely was interested in music at a young age. Uh, he talked about his father being a spiritual man. That was true, although not from New Delhi, but Missouri. And the fact of his background being not Indian, but as we talked about, spoiler, uh, African-American. I think all of this is is very interesting in terms of that period because when he was on TV in 1949 and in the early 50s, I mean, Jim Crow was still on, all of these things. I mean, this is pre-civil rights era and things like that. I mean, you want to talk about lack of representation. I mean, there was uh, very little opportunity for a black man to have his own TV show. I mean, the, the only one who had one, and it was a few years later, was Nat King Cole in the 50s. Which was always a struggle to keep the sponsors, and they had to be very careful about racial representations and everything. So it was very touch and go as far as Nat King Cole even having his own TV show for a while. Like I said, I did not know this uh, story until it popped up again when the film, I believe they may have crowdfunded it or it was getting uh, attention because it was completed. I can't remember which because there was a series of stories about this documentary that that led to the stories of retelling this uh, reveal about him and his background. And and when I read them, I was like, wow, that's that's really fascinating. And there was part of me that kind of felt kind of a mix when it came to the fact of his passing for uh, another race, another group, another ethnicity, in that I thought, well, you know, hey, it's entertainment, right? I mean, everybody puts on an actor, actors, um, that's fine, right? You know, that's okay. But then I also thought, well, maybe that's not necessarily fine. Because if you're pushing yourself off as something that you're not and claiming to be something and you're uh, appropriating aspects of a culture that you don't belong to, are you doing that culture a service or a disservice? Because if this is the only thing that people know of that culture, which at the time I'd have to say most people didn't know anything about South Asians, people from India, there was very few representations of that in that period. I, I don't know – like if, if that's necessarily a good thing, there's also the question of he was a very positive stereotype. And what I mean by that is uh, when, when you see the film and you hear him talk and everything, it was very much about the universal language of music and how music brings all people together and all of that. So that's a very positive thing. That's a very positive statement, uh, place to stand in the culture in that time. But it also leads me to question much like I, I think we talked about yesterday that it's like the old stereo, like, like if there are good stereotypes for certain races or ethnicities. So for example, well, of course all Asians are good at math, right? This is like some stereotype, right? They always have the nerdy kid who's a, you know, a Chinese kid or Japanese kid or whatever in a film, you know, and therefore he's like the math genius. Well, that's a stereotype, but is that okay for that to be a stereotype when it's not a negative stereotype? For example, if it was African-American kid, then maybe he would be a thug or a, a criminal. You know, how is one better than the other? And then also the question of that time period where there weren't opportunities for someone like him outside of basically if he was to just portray himself as a black man maybe playing in the chitlin circuit or something playing black only clubs and dealing with the problems of that 
the documentary is fascinating by bringing up a lot of those questions and being able to to deal with them in a very intelligent way. You know, I was afraid at first, like, oh, geez, what's going to happen when they do the reveal? And it's interesting because they do hint at it a little bit beforehand. Like, if you watch this documentary knowing that the reveal is going to happen – you will pay a little bit more attention to things like, you know, how could this Indian man do all this stuff? And, you know, just like certain hints here and there as far as this goes. And I thought that was rather clever that they kind of put those maybe clues in a little bit early. Yeah, once they do the reveal, they handled it really, really well. I mean, the only thing I think I would have liked to have seen was more of a uh, an Indian reaction to it. Like, what would... I mean, obviously, you can't go out and pull the entire breadth and, and width of India to find out what everybody's opinion is on it. But I would like to know at least of maybe get a point counterpoint from a couple different people as far as is this insulting or is this not? I mean, when it comes to black people passing for white, I don't necessarily feel insulted by that. I just feel bad that it was ever necessary. That's the thing that's ultimately at the bottom of it that is very sad is that people did have to go through that stuff. And even to the point uh, that they talk about in the film, the certain aspects of the legacy of black people wearing uh, turbans, head wraps, being able to pass to just get service in certain parts of the country. This reminds me of, I remember when I read the autobiography of Malcolm X, he was talking about if you're a black person in America, if you have an African name or an African look, you would get more respect than you would if you were just a black man in America. So he was talking about how Africans from the continent would come visit and they wouldn't have to run into the same Jim Crow problems that he did and others did. They would get more respect. And in a lot of ways, I think that also led to, within that community, embracing what I would call for lack of a better term, Orientalism, the idea that they are from another place and they are from, you know, and embracing that whole idea, which is partly what was at the bottom of, of the Nation of Islam, was that embrace of of this other culture, which wasn't directly related to them, but could be, and using that as a way to, to gain respect and, as you say, passing, well, not necessarily passing, but demanding respect within the culture. The thing that I really liked about the, the way the documentary is handled is that they do use it in a way that there is this mystery. And I think it's interesting that he himself was a mysterious figure. He tried to be uh, distanced from people, you know, in that way. Even even his own uh, relatives and others and people who knew him for, for many years did not know his secret until later. Uh, some did and they were basically kind of sworn to secrecy. They didn't want to talk about it or, or they continued to say, no, 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 you're wrong. He definitely was Indian. He was not from Missouri, but, um, I, I, I like the way that they, they do lay it out and I get a very good feeling, uh, within the revival section of the nineties that these guys genuinely loved this man and appreciated him for who he was. And at times, even um, I think because he had been down on his luck for a while, it appears. I it sort of seems like it's not really explained outside of 
uh, when, when the hard times happened, what he did outside of that, I guess maybe he continued to be a musician and play small shows. But I mean, I'm sure it must have been a hard fall to go from being on TV every day and selling all these records to probably the late 70s and into the 80s and maybe even in the early 90s when nobody cared and nobody knew who he was anymore. Well, it was interesting to me that they kind of had a theory as far as the fall of Corla Pandit and that he was kind of usurped by Liberace. And I was like, oh, yeah, I guess I can see that. And just the way that they described what Liberace's early performances were like. And obviously, you know, smiling at the camera, and, and but he was much less Sphinx-like. And then he also had very much his, his patter and everything. So it was interesting to see how this one kind of eccentric character replaced another eccentric character. Which I could also see, I mean, given it was the 1950s, and granted Liberace had his own baggage, which uh, later, you know, he, he never talked about, but everybody knew. And that he would sue people over. Yeah, it's interesting to me that, that he would have replaced a tan person or a person of color, in a way. Because it almost seems like a corollary, for example, of Little Richard does Tutti Frutti, and that's fine, but it's Pat Boone who actually sells more copies of it, re-recording it a few months later and selling it to white kids. So the idea of, in this time period, taking something and redoing it in some way in a little more palatable for the, for the masses of white folks um, doesn't seem that out of the ordinary, sadly. And when we're talking about passing, it's a few months ago we did an episode on a film called The Slanted Screen. And in that, they were primarily, when they were talking about Asian people, they were primarily talking about Chinese and Japanese people. But to look at Korla Pandit as passing for Indian, I mean, when you look at that, and we're talking about respect and everything, he did that so much more respectfully than other people who played Indians in film. I mean, I still haven't gone back and watched The Party with Peter Sellers, but I've seen clips, and I'm just like, okay, that's a little broad. But I think the worst one was Fisher Stevens in Short Circuit, where it was just like Indian times 100 kind of thing. And like to the point where I actually thought that he was Indian, where I was just like, there's no way that anybody would portray a character that broad uh, unless they were indian you know like they had to have had that race card <laughs> but but no no fisher stevens was a white guy and he's doing that well the cat is dragged in a sight for four eyes that is for sure you look dreadful yeah there was a piece online i think it was either an interview or a written piece with aziz ansari the comedian and he was talking about fisher stevens and when he was a kid that was basically the only portrayal of an indian that he saw on tv or in a film Sort of his take on, man, that was horrible. Like, that, it's like the worst thing you want to see as a small Indian kid growing up in America. I don't know if, uh, you know, the, the uh, Indian characters on Seinfeld were much better, but I think that they were at least being played by brown people. So that's at least a step in the right direction. Yeah, very bad. Very, very, very bad. But then you get into something like a, um, what is it, Pretty in Pink kind of situation. Here you have an, an actual Japanese man playing a stereotypical Japanese character. So, so I mean, I, I guess it all depends on not only who it is that's playing it, but how that characterization is. And like I said, I think that for him to use 
an Indian character at a time when most people didn't even know what that even was. They just know it was some exotic place way over there. I mean, probably the only thing that people would have saw by 1949 of India would have been Gandhi, you know, because the independence from Britain was 1948 and they probably would have seen maybe newsreels. You know, that probably would have been it. So there's very little of, I would say, mainstream India, either that or they were watching what Gunga Din as a film. I'm trying to think of what it, you know, what else is out there. You know, there's probably more British film that had India or Indian characters in it than American films because of just obviously Britain's connection to the subcontinent. So he, he could get away with a lot by the fact that people were ignorant. They just didn't know anything. Let's go ahead and take a break, and we're going to play an interview with the filmmakers behind Corla, director John Turner and producer Eric Christensen. I'm Eric Christensen. I'm the co-producer of Corla with John Turner, 36-year veteran of ABC television. And I'm John Turner, the director of Corla, and probably about 35 years with ABC TV. Something tells me I know the answer to my next question, which is, where did you guys meet? Well, we did. We met uh, at uh, ABC Channel 7 in San Francisco. I was there first as a producer in arts and entertainment, and uh, John came aboard as an editor, and we shared a lot of similar interests in uh, some of the more uh, interesting, hip uh, kind of art uh, projects that we both tried to infuse into the daily newscasts. So when was the first time that you guys ever heard of or heard Cola Pandit? Well, this is Eric. As a child, I grew up in San Francisco, and we'd gotten a TV in the early 50s, and he was one of the first shows that I saw. My mom watched him, and these were actually 15-minute shows that he did where he never said a word, just played the organ. I didn't think a lot of him, about him then because I was a very young kid, but his legend grew, and then... Uh, uh, later on, uh, did get to meet him once and uh, uh, was always fascinated on what happened to him and uh, who he really was. I uh, immigrated from the Midwest out to California, so I knew nothing of Corla Pandit except for the fact that I had a, uh, I bought a 5x7 uh, publicity headshot of him from a, uh, a bookstore and kind of wondered who's this guy uh, dressed in a, in a, you know, uh, with a turban with jewels on it. And I knew that he was in show business, but I knew nothing of his background. And it wasn't until I uh, was producing a, uh, a series on uh, Bay Area centrics that I uh, heard of a fellow named Corla Pandit who had had a show, a live show that Eric was just talking about in on uh, Channel 7's air in, in the 1950s. And from there, I was able to find uh, footage of him playing on these uh, uh, three to four minute uh, early videos of him doing, you know, a composition at a time. And when you're finding footage of him, are you going back through the ABC archives where you guys are working? Yeah, we dug through them. And then when John did the store, we found some clips uh, in, in the archives there. And uh, it wasn't until much later that a lot of these things started appearing on YouTube. So when our first interest came, this is kind of pre-YouTube, so you did have to do some digging to find uh, the clips. And also, we uh, the station did a anniversary show in which uh, Corla made an appearance, and Eric and I both got to meet him. He, he brought along 
a clip reel of, of maybe a dozen of his songs. So we had access to that of Corla performing as a as a younger man, probably in his 30s and 40s. Now the anniversary show, uh, you know, featured some of the early stars. Jack Lane was an early Bay Area performer on on Channel uh, Seven, the exercise guy. And the whole hook with bringing Corla back, this was a 1988 40th anniversary of Channel 7, was that Corla would speak for the first time. So Russ Coglin, the station manager, interviewed Corla on this uh, TV special celebrating 40 years of uh, Channel 7. Because on, on none of these uh, clips were performance clips that he had on, on TV that were actually shown throughout the United States as filler for... Uh, late night television when they weren't able to program 24 hours yet because it was in the television was in its infancy. Anyway, the the hook with Corla is that he would look uh, directly at the camera lens with his magnetic eyes while he, while he played his uh, hypnotic tunes and he never smoke spoke. And that was, uh, that was what was most interesting and intriguing about fans of Corla Panda is they never heard him speak, and they always wondered, well, what's this guy's story? Where is he from, or where in India is he from, and why doesn't he speak? And uh, it was a, it was a gimmick that that the people at the uh, at KTLA in San Francisco, when Corla first started performing uh, in Los Angeles in 1949, they said, you know, play as much music as you want, but don't speak. And so he took that through. 900 performances when he never spoke a word yet played, uh, you know, hundreds of songs and entertained thousands and thousands of women who were uh, watching as they were uh, doing their laundry or doing household chores. It was uh, later in his career when he started playing clubs and theaters and things that he would uh, speak to the audience and usually a spiritual kind of rap he'd uh, begin his performances, My Soul Greets Your Soul and Namaste, and really was one of the early proponents of uh, the Indian uh, Eastern mysticism. And in fact, in the early days, uh, he was friends with Yogananda. Yogananda wrote liner notes for one of Korla's uh, many albums. So he did uh, garner a spiritual following, and he did uh, address those issues when he uh, performed live. So what was that first meeting like with you guys in Corla? And did you meet him together or separate? Uh, it was separate. At that event, it was just hello and, uh, you know, uh, recognizing that uh, I'd seen him on TV. And uh, it was later that John tracked him down to do the story for, uh, for Channel 7 on whatever happened to Corla. And, of course, all this time, nobody had questioned uh, his backstory that he told that he was a child from India of a, a Brahmin uh, and a French uh, opera singer raised in uh, Bombay and uh, then came to this country at an early age. So that was the story he told. That was the story we obviously had no reason to question at the time. And what led you to go from that initial meeting and these kind of early influences of Corla in your guys' lives to let's make a documentary about this guy. Eric and I are both retired from um, Channel 7 News. We got together for lunch about about four years ago 
to kind of find out what you know what we were what we were each up to. And Eric had been making uh, uh, documentaries since his retirement. He had he had made two documentaries: one on uh, the Trips Festival, which was about uh, the early days of taking acid with Ken Kesey and the Grateful Dead, and then the other film he made was on. Uh, the history of uh, of uh, poster art, rock and or rock album covers. Excuse me, yeah. the cover story album art. Yeah, it's called. Which 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 traced you know the roots of uh, record album cover art. Anyway, so when we were having lunch, we started kicking around some ideas about how we could collaborate. You know, Eric brought to the brought to the table, the physical table, that uh, uh, you know these contacts he had with some of the uh, Bay Area filmmakers and camera people and editors. And I had brought a, a mindset of being interested in, in, in long-time documentation of uh, eccentric uh, personalities and artists. I, I did a book on uh, a folk artist, a self-taught artist named Howard Finster. I, di- I did that and did uh, uh, another book on the modern father of painting on velvet, a gentleman named Edgar Leetag, and did another book on outsider photography. Anyway, we thought that uh, by joining forces, we could probably do a pretty interesting documentary on an extremely interesting uh, personality. One of the things that uh, kind of helped seal the deal was we'd always been interested in Coral and who he was and all that, and it wasn't until a couple of years after he died that an article came out in the L.A. magazine by an author, R.J. Smith, who is a music uh, writer. And he wrote, uh, was writing at the time a book on Central Avenue, The Great Black Way, uh, which is a very interesting book about the whole music scene, Central Avenue in Los Angeles in the 40s and 50s. And in the process of doing that, he interviewed a boogie-woogie piano player, who offhandedly mentioned, he said, you know, I wasn't the best piano player uh, growing up in Columbia, Missouri. There was this guy who John Roland Red, who was much better than I was, and I come to L.A. in the 50s, early 50s, and there he is on TV wearing a turban calling himself Corla. Well, two years after Corla's death, R.J. began research this and found out, indeed, uh, this whole story of born in India and all that was a total fabrication and a fabrication for good reason. There were a lot of reasons how black musicians couldn't get on television, couldn't play at certain gigs, couldn't join the union. So by reinventing himself as an Indian, which is a phenomenon called passing, passing is something other than, than black. He was able to craft a career. And once this, started and once he became known and successful he just kept this up and it was uh, difficult because he had to do it 24 7. Now how did you guys decide when it came to actually diving into this how you're going to divide the work and what was your process of kind of gathering all these interviews because you've got some great great interviews in this documentary. Well basically from from doing uh, you know researching three books I uh, you know enjoy you know, digging into the stacks and now, uh, you know, exploiting the uh, the Internet for information. So I took on the primary role of researcher for the film. And from researching, I was able to find out who were some of the uh, the players in uh, the telling of, of uh, John's Roland Red story. 
And Eric, uh, because of his longtime connection with Bay Area musicians, he was able to get interviews with people like Carlos Santana and Booker T. It was it was kind of like the uh, the inter the interweaving of these talents that uh, we were able to come up with a division of labor. A lot of credit to John in terms of uh, you know finding not only material. I mean, a lot of times you do a documentary on somebody and there's not a lot of material out there. Fortunately. There were the transcriptions of his performances, but John found amazing photographs. The hardest thing, and John spent a lot of time doing this, was getting family members to talk. We had one, uh, Gary Cloud, a nephew who, who spoke, and uh, the family was reluctant because a lot of them didn't react well to the R.J. Smith story in the uh, L.A. magazine of outing Corla. They kept his secret. They knew who he really was. And, uh, you know, they weren't sure who we were and weren't sure how we were going to handle the story. The fortunate thing that's happened since we did the movie is we've invited family members to come and they've all embraced it and all recognize that Coral is being honored in this film, not being mocked, and that it's a fair portrayal of him. While it's a controversial subject, you know, we feel pretty good about what we did and that uh, the family feels good about it has been very heartening to us. So uh, that that uh, has been one of the reasons to do the film is to honor this man who's arguably the first African-American to have his own television show. And, uh, you know, the different aspects of his life, the spiritual aspect was not a fabrication. He really believed in the universal language of music and uh you know, was a pioneer in the new age kind of uh, music, considered the godfather of exotica, and, and yeah, a pioneer in television, so uh, able to uh, get uh, a proclamation from the San Francisco Board of Supervisors honoring him uh, that we had done for the first screening at the Museum of the African Diaspora in San Francisco. And uh, John also got the uh, National Association of Broadcast uh, Mattis to uh, honor him as a television pioneer. Also uh, arranged for a screening in uh, John's hometown of Columbia, Missouri, where we had a screening in which we invited, you know, uh, members of the community who knew a little bit about uh, John, but not a lot. And that was, uh, we coupled that with a, uh, you know, a panel to discuss uh, John's uh, role in the community. And the mayor of Columbia also presented a pro proclamation naming that uh, the day that we gave the screening as a uh, Corla Pandit Day in Columbia, Missouri. We also are in the process of arranging a show of uh, Corla Ephemera at the Boone County Historical Society, which will open at the beginning of next year. So people in Columbia will now be able to celebrate their native son, John Roland Red, a.k.a. Corla Pandit. We've done certain festivals, but the most uh, the most interesting thing is we won the audience award at the Harlem International Film Festival in Harlem, New York. And the film, uh, because of the text of passing and racial the racial text of passing, uh, has uh, garnered quite a bit of interest in the African American community and quite a bit of support. We've been communicating with some uh, museums that deal with. African-American uh, history 
and they're interested in showing it. So we've uh, made some educational inroads as well as uh, as uh, festival inroads. In addition to uh, uh, you know uh, outreaching to the African American community, we have also been in uh, contact with uh, the what we'd like to think of as the hipster tiki crowd who uh, embraced uh, Corla as a as you know as as Eric mentioned as the godfather exotica and so they they put him uh you know on the same level as Lex Baxter and uh Martin Denny people like that and so we've, we've you know, like this past weekend uh, uh Corla screened at the uh, Hukilau festival in Fort Lauderdale uh Florida where all the tiki chiefs from the East Coast uh, uh, came and got to uh, watch this, uh, watch the film about one of their one of their heroes. So we've been in contact with the tiki crowd, the African American uh, crowd, as well as uh, people interested in the history of television. It, it was shown at uh, Dartmouth in in the uh, uh, Department of television history, and uh, I recently showed it at uh, Notre Dame for their film studies classes. So people are interested in it for, or its story seems to play to several different types of audiences. Yeah, diversity is interesting. We get uh, quite a range of uh, people coming to see it from women who are probably in their 70s, 80s now who saw them on television to when we screened it in L.A. at the Don't Knock the Rock Festival. Uh, Poison Ivy of the Cramps and uh, Pearl Harbor came to see it. So hipsters and uh, the tiki crowd, and then uh, you know, as you say, it's it's found a nice audience in the African American community as well. Uh, so we get a very diversity is a good thing in terms of fans of Corla. I'm glad to hear that it's going over well, especially in the African American community. Community, just because I wasn't sure in this day and age if passing is looked down upon or if it was looked upon as kind of a, you know, I don't want to say necessary evil, but something that was needed to be done in order to advance. Like I said, this was a, a question that Eric and I had to give a lot of thought to in preparation for making this film as to how we were going to present this story. We finally came to the conclusion that this, that passing really isn't talked about much in the press or in, or even among the African American community. And we, we thought that it would be the responsible thing to make this film and to talk about the struggles and the barriers that were put up for Coraline, how he circumvented them through uh, actually the age-old practice of passing, which goes back to the beginning of our country. We have had people passing, you know, 250 years ago. It's, it, was, it was not that uncommon, just not that well known within the uh, Caucasian community. So we felt that it was, a, it was kind of a, a story that needed to be told to the next generation, to the younger generation of African Americans about one of their forefathers who actually had to reinvent himself and pass in order to reap the benefits of his talent. You know, one of the things that we, we didn't, as two white filmmakers, want to make much of a statement, but what we did is sought out uh, Dr. Harry Edwards, who I had known uh, for many years, who was the organizer of the uh, Mexico City Olympics boycott. And uh, I think he addresses the issue in a very sensible way, in a very 
interesting way. And when we showed the film at uh, MOAD, the Museum of the African Diaspora in San Francisco, we invited Doc Edwards to speak about it. And also a woman, Alison Hobbs, who's re- written, uh, uh, she's a Stanford professor and has written a book called A Chosen Exile, which is a very good book about the history of passing. So it's a subject that's being discussed more. And, you know, right after we finished making the film, the story of Rachel Dolezal, the woman who was the head of the NAACP in Spokane, Washington, came out. And that caused great controversy because she was white passing as black, which is kind of a an opposite thing. And although a lot of these different stories of passing have their own nuance to it and their own reason, Corla's reason was specifically economic. And uh, so it was a different, uh, different sort of thing. But it, the thing that we're heartened by is at le- least shed some light on the subject. And, you know, race has become, well, it's always been, but, you know, in, in re- recent history, it, 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 it uh, there's so, so much, um, you know, that uh, has been focused on it, that uh, this is just another aspect that hopefully we're opening up a discussion for. Now, I know one of Corliss' uh, children passed away. Did you ever have an opportunity to talk to his other kid? No, we were uh, unable to locate him. We were able to get in contact with one of uh, Corliss' uh, grandchildren, who was the uh, son of Corliss' son of, of Shari Pandit. His name is Krishna Pandit, and it, we were able to get a hold of him. But as we showed in the film, uh, Corla and his wife, Beryl, never told their children that Corliss' true heritage was that of an African-American. And they didn't learn of this until the article came out by R.J. Smith. And, of course, their reactions were, I guess, uh, stressed, to say the least, uh, that they had been deceived by their father. And uh, we also, the, grand, the grandchild, he came to a screening in, uh, in Santa Rosa, and uh, he talked to Eric and said that, he hadn't learned that his that his grandfather was African American until a few years earlier. Yeah, what, what happened with uh, Krishna is somebody had sent him a re-release of Corla's music and it said Corla Pandit, A.K.A. John Roland Red, and he contacted the music producer and uh, he directed him to go online and find this whole story. So that that's kind of fascinating. But he he was very emotional watching it. Loved the shots of his father with his grandfather, you know, had met his grandfather many times, embraced our project and, and uh, were, were very heartened that, uh, you know, what he told me was, I'm glad you did this. I now have a legacy to show my children. I can't even imagine what that must have been like for them to experience that. I mean, just the tidal wave of different emotions that they must have experienced. Yeah. And, and that's something that, we, you know, neither Eric and I can really speak for or speak about because we have only heard second and third hand information about their reactions and we'd kind of like to, you know, leave it at that. I noticed that in the credits that Craig Baldwin got thanks. What role did he play when it came to putting the documentary together? Craig actually uh, has been a fan of Corliss for a long time. And uh, actually at uh, his screenings uh, in San Francisco of uh, unusual films or rare films, Many times uh, he he will start the evenings screenings with a couple, uh, two or three Corla Pandit piano vi- videos and organ videos strung together. 
So Craig was uh, able to uh, turn turn me on to several other people here in the Bay Area who were fans of uh, Corla Pandit, which led to uh, finding photographs and finding rare recordings and things of that nature. But uh, as you can tell, there there are a lot of people who uh, who certainly uh, helped us out on this project. Now, I know you're still screening the documentary around quite a bit. Are there plans for distribution via like VOD or DVD or any of these other formats? Yeah, we're, we're exploring all those possibilities. It's a process, and we're involved in that process. That's about all I can say. I mean, we'd like as many people to see it. Television, streaming, uh, other forms of distribution are uh, what we're exploring. What were some of your biggest challenges when it came to making the documentary? Well, number one would be fun, funding. As you know, and, and your listeners know, uh, even with the, the advent of, of uh, the price of television or recording equipment coming down immeasurably, it still is expensive to put together an hour-and-a-half documentary, an hour-and-28-minute documentary. Uh, so I would say uh, Eric and I uh, decided that we were going to fund the entire film between ourselves, and that would that would come from our retirement pension checks and our social security checks and some of our savings. You know that was that was what we were able to you know draw a budget from was what we were able to toss in the collectively toss in the pot, and then we also did a uh, our first uh, Kickstarter campaign in which we uh, we raised uh, we raised successfully raised our goal on the first time out. I got to ask, are you guys, uh, do you have significant others? Are you married? Yeah, I'm uh, married with a child. Uh, I've been married for 26 years. And, uh, you know, my wife uh, puts up with me doing this. <laughs> yeah, that was going to be my next question. Was she glad to get you out of the house? or? The first two projects were very different. Uh, my Trips Festival movie I did on a shoestring. The uh, album cover art, you know, I, I call it a self-propelled pyramid scheme you know the money i made from trips went into the next one and uh, unfortunately the next one hasn't been as successful the album art one i thought it would be more successful because so many record collectors and the whole idea of that film was that are we losing archival material in this digital age when there's no liner notes no album covers per se and people can just download music so that that was an interesting project but those two I did did by myself and did them kind of my own pace and all this. Corla was a lot more challenging, both, uh, you know, I'll say this, both getting it to the level we wanted it and uh, financially as well, uh, you know, having to get the rights to certain things and, and, and that. So, um, you know, uh, independent filmmaking is, uh, if you do it to make a lot of money, uh, you're in for a, <laughs> an awakening. There's very few that do that, unless you're Michael Moore or uh, uh, Ken Burns. But uh, it, it's rewarding to keep the creative juices flowing. And look, John and I did news stories every day. And, you know, on one hand, making a film like this is an elongated news story. But it's, you know, a lot more involved when you don't have the resources of ABC behind you. And, and uh, you know, you, you don't have the... Uh, uh, those resources and some of the uh, some of the things that that you can 
call on. But but you know the skills that both of us learned doing daily news stuff certainly helped as filmmakers in terms of making decisions and working efficiently. One more question for you guys: If you had to pick one Corla Pandit song each, what are what are your, your favorites? Well, Song of India, you know, I can't get that out of my head. It's used a lot in in the movie, but it's kind of was the signature song. And I would go with uh, Trance Dance. And guys, where can people go to find out more about the movie? Well, they can go to the, uh, we have a website, www.corlofthemovie.com, and there they can uh, find out where it's uh, going to be screened next. And they can also go to the Facebook page of Corla the Movie, and there they will see, you know, some information about uh, articles that have come out about Corla recently, or um, photographs from some of the screenings and some of the people that we've met on our our journey of discovery with Corla Panda. John, Eric, thank you both so much for your time today. This was a real pleasure talking to you. All right, great. Well, thank you very much. Appreciate it. We are back, and we were talking about Corla the movie, as it's often called, as opposed to Corla the person, who we were kind of talking a little bit more about during the uh, opening there. But thanks to Corla the movie for starting up that whole conversation. I mean, this is one of those movies that it's nice when it's over, there's so much more to talk about than what was just in the film. You know, it opens up a lot of great, great discussions. And I think that that really comes through as far as what uh, John and Eric were saying as far as all the different audiences to which they can show this film and find people that appreciate it for these different dialogues that it can kind of open up. Rob, did you like the way that the movie was actually put together? I thought it was well done. I can tell that there were some budget limitations, but I was actually quite impressed with the range of people that they had, the interviews that they did have. The one place that I felt was a tad lacking was I think it would have been interesting to hear from people within the Indian community who saw this character during his prime or this person on TV and what they thought of him. Um, There's a little bit of a discussion on that, but it's mostly centered on the discussion of passing and there's professors and, you know, basically uh, anthropologists talking about how black folks were treated during the time of Jim Crow. And, And that's a very important aspect. But like I said, I would have loved to have heard from, Indian community, uh, several members who maybe had a good opinion or maybe thought that this was not necessarily a good thing and why, and to hear what they think of sort of his use of these stereotypes and these images, some of which are connected to their culture and some of which are not, such as the turban. Um, That's mostly a Sikh thing, which I remember when September 11th happened, someone shot and killed a guy in, I think it was Arizona, who was wearing a turban and he was a Sikh. Because they thought he was a like Bin Laden, who was of course seen wearing a turban. So um, there's a big difference between Muslims, Sikhs, and Indians. As I'm watching the movie and they're talking about his family, when they first introduce his family, I'm just like, 
what are they telling the kids? And it really feels like they were completely committed to this idea of him being this Indian man to the point where it really felt like, you know, his son had, one of his two sons had completely embraced that. And yeah, I can't imagine either the kids or even, you know, other relatives finding out about this and what that must have done to them. I mean, just how committed were they to the story? And if they were fully committed, once you find out that, Corla Pan, it was this African-American gentleman from Missouri. What does that do to you? Well, that was one of the things that I thought was lacking in the film. I guess it was maybe never really explained because I don't remember an interview with either one of his children. It didn't say that they were dead. Uh, one of them is seen in footage playing with his father in the later years. No, actually, he did pass away. Uh, it seems like cousins or other relatives from the hometown were discussing who he was and some of that background and sort of how the family dealt with that uh, much more than his immediate family. It must be like, you know, finding out that the person who you thought was your father all your life, it wasn't your father. And well, you know, in, in this case, it was what he portrayed himself as was not true, but then that affects you as well. I mean, that affects how you identify with stuff. So that's just, uh, yeah, just, fascinating stuff so many interesting questions that that raises but again this movie doesn't answer every question which i kind of appreciate it's one of those movies that actually makes you want to talk about it and want to discuss it afterwards that's what makes it fun any final thoughts on corla the movie no i just think it's really well done and people should take time to go take a look at it uh if you have already i think that the interview you heard and you know give you a little more background on it it's definitely worth your time for me, after watching it, I'm like, man, I got to go back through like record bins at shops and see if I can pull pull up some of this stuff because I'd actually like to hear some of those early records. It sounds like the later ones got kind of ridiculous, which is kind of the same thing with with Martin Denny. Uh, although I do have most of the Martin Denny stuff, I have most of the Esquivel stuff as well. So the, the the issue that you run in with these guys, and I'm sure that he maybe had the same thing as the 50s came on, is that sometimes there's two different versions. There's a mono and there's a stereo version, so the covers will be different, and maybe there's different tracks, or it sounds a little different because, you know, one was done for mono, one was done for stereo. So I don't know. Maybe I'll pick up some of uh, the early, the early, early stuff and check it out. I'm not that familiar with the organ, so watching him play it was just fascinating, especially watching the one hand being kind of the rhythm section. I was like, oh, yeah, I never really thought about that. And just to see him, it looked so careless, but it came out sounding right. You know, it just looked like he was just kind of tapping on the, the, the keys. But it's the right stuff coming out. Well, it's much more like that, as you were talking about. And if you've seen any of the footage or you see the film, you know what Mike's talking about, this sort of percussive use of against the keys. I'm familiar with organ in the jazz context, thanks to here in Detroit, Ed Love, who's been on WDT since I was a kid. Ed would always play Jimmy Smith and Richard Groove Holmes and guys like that, little organ trios. And that stuff sounds way different than what he's doing here. The stuff in here is very atmospheric and deliberate in that way. And just sort of taking popular songs, show tunes, things like that, and kind of messing with them a little bit, which was the basis for jazz. I mean, the idea of standards, everybody plays, you know, the same 
50 songs. They just play them all different ways. So it's interesting to see sort of his take on how he uses the instrument in that way versus what I'm used to hearing from, like I said, to me, like Jimmy Smith and Richard Groove Holmes being the two sort of big, big, uh, straight ahead, mid 50s jazz organists. So yeah, definitely check out Corla the Movie. You can find out more over at CorlaTheMovie.com. I know that's a pretty hard URL to remember, but I will definitely link to it over at our website, Projection-Booth.com. So Rob, what have you been up to lately, sir? Absolutely nothing. I just lay about and I have no life. No, I'm just kidding. Wow. No, I've been insanely busy um, traveling. I've been bothering the people in the fair city of Boston where our good friends from outside the cinema reside probably four, three or four times in the past eight weeks. So that's been going on and just works keeping me busy and the book's doing well, as we talked about before and just um, trying to sleep when I can, because I've got so much going on between my two gigs. I still have the free press thing going on. You can get that of course at uh, freep.com also on iTunes. It's called detours and it's every Thursday morning. If you're in the Detroit area and you want to hear my uh, interviews with people who got some interesting things going on during the week weekend here in our fair city and also sort of a rundown of maybe uh, five or six things to do with your weekend every Thursday morning. You can get that for free. So you didn't sever your ties when they called you a hipster in the paper? No, um, but I did call out my co-host, who happens to be the editor of the arts and culture section. He has no idea how they got in there. I'm going to take him at his word, but I, I, as I said, I don't consider myself a hipster. I'm far too poor, bald, and angry and old to be a uh, hipster. I think it's the hat. Maybe it's the hat. A lot of people hate this hat. It angers a lot of people, just the sight of it. It's kind of like that, I guess. I guess I'm, I guess I'm becoming Uncle Buck. I just don't have like two kids to take care of because I'm not an uncle and I don't have any brothers or sisters. So that might be for the best. Yeah, I would really like that car that backfires though. That'd be kind of sweet. You'd like backfire it on cue. That's pretty sweet. Well, thank you, Rob, for coming back on the show. Thanks for talking about Corla with me. Thanks to everybody for listening. To find out more about today's show, go over to the website, projection-booth.com, where you can find links to iTunes, where you can rate and review the show. Every rating we get helps bring about universal peace.
this show and want more people to know about it head on over to itunes leave a comment and rate it five stars make sure you like and share us on facebook and don't forget to follow us on twitter just search for christopher media thank you in advance for supporting christopher media by clicking on the paypal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support christophermedia.net most importantly we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you christopher media could not exist without your support thank you for visiting christophermedia.net and thank you for listening Christopher Media. Let's make some noise.